Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group and the Managed Fund Association, where our guest host today, Chris Solas, continues his conversation with Chris Cole, Dan Stone and Matthew Sargason, where they discuss global macroeconomic market risks, volatility trading, and tail risk hedging. So without further ado, let's rejoin the conversation. I think just to loop this back to our initial comments, I think the suppression of volatility has come at the hand of quantitative easing, which push, pushed interest rates down to zero around the world. And even today, there's still eight to $10 trillion of negative yielding sovereign bonds. Yeah. And this has led to this reach for yield, which has led to deterioration of credit quality. And it's also led to these short vol products where you're, where you're selling premium and collecting the coupons and everything works well until one day it, it, it doesn't work well. You know, in the good old days of hedge funds prior to 2008, short vol strategies were high yield credit it was like anything like long short equity was the, the actual the short vol strategy I say it still is <laughs> of course it, is. Uh, yeah. it still is it still is and even bigger yeah but what I've seen which is so amazing it's it's people are coming and that's the name of the fund it's called the short vol fund you know very explicitly it's, it's actually you know they're not they're not dressing it up but you didn't see any of these until really over the past five eight years and they're very explicit and this is what they're doing and you know it does work over time that probably is a positive expected value proposition over time, but no one wants to take that pain. And I think that's the big worry that there's a lot of institutional portfolios that have a lot of pain to come if and when it all builds up to this 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 big event. It's not a hedge fund strategy. It's a, it's no. a, it's a risk premium of, you know, of sorts. And it's a very low expected long-term return. But if you get an environment like we've had, then uh, you certainly see people running into the game, which yeah. actually you know, obviously exacerbates the, the problem. Yeah. The one thing we, you know, we talked a bit about the QE moving into QT here in the US. In Europe, it's not clear to me that, you know, we're going to see the same unwind. I think Draghi will blink because he hasn't managed to sort of revive the European economy, anything like as well as the Fed has. And the worry to me is actually that, you know, his, his next step, because asset purchasing didn't really work as well as they wanted it to, is to go kind of all out. It'll be helicopter money. It'll be like a people's QE, mm. just to basically to stop the Italians from trying to pull out of the European Union at the same time as the Brits. Mm. And if you do that, then you end up with an inflationary pressure, which we haven't seen for a very long time, that probably does have some other impact in the economy and probably also helps drive down. I mean, so in temporarily, it will probably support the, the equity market but it then screws up the fixed income market even more. And then, yeah. 
it's a, it's a fascinating point and it's an amazing point. I mean, let's just imagine for a second that let's just imagine for a second that they, they turn around and they decide to print money to go reinvest it and do public works projects. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not making a political argument mm-hmm. whether this is good or bad. I'm just, I'm just kind of stating, let's imagine this hypothetical scenario. Yeah. Well, you end up having all this money being, or they just give out helicopter money for, to, to help people and, and to, to pay off student loans and all those other things. So let's just imagine this happens. It's immediately inflationary. But what you might end up seeing in that scenario is a massive uptick in interest rates catching up with inflation. And by the way, what caused the 87 unwind of the major shortfall trade was 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 actually people don't realize this inflation was lower in 87 than where it was where it is today so you had a quick increase in rates up 300 basis points in a period of 5 months that then caused credit stress that then caused a big short ball trade to unwind so the populism this is where the populism intercedes with the market risks. Mm. And I think people look at these risks as independent risks and they're not looking at them in how they interrelate with the ecosystem of financial products as well. And I would say that the theme of monetary policy divergence, if if it expands, that's one that's by definition very favorable for currency vol, in particular major market currency vol, which at the end of the day is ultimately about just these interest rate differentials. Yeah. From the discretionary traders that I talk to, a lot of them are very bullish about the, this upcoming environment. For one, we're off the lower bound of the short end of interest rates. And for the first time really in nine years with the, the Fed at 2.5% and cuts priced in for 2020, we could really see make a fair, a fair game that it, it's a two-way market for the first time in years. Yeah. The Fed could cut or they could increase, increase interest rates. And that's very interesting. It's great for, for active managers. It's good for interest rate traders. I think that's a bigger theme as well is, you know, hindsight, of course, is 2020. But when you have a bull market, when you have low interest rates and you have low volatility, you want to be with passive investments. It's, it's a time like now when everything's in play when you have sideways markets, and particularly when you have a bear market, that's when you want to be with active managers. And it's not necessarily just you know long volatility managers. It's not really volatility arbitrage managers, but really anyone who keeps a market neutral portfolio, if they're a discretionary trader, discretionary macro, the old school thematic macro, interest rates in FX, this could have a very good 2019, 2020. So I think we're getting a lot of interest back into active management, which effectively is, is all of hedge fund strategies. Well, any, anyone who makes the classic hedge fund, so, somehow hedge fund morphed into shortfall, hmm. I think, or risk premium. But there's, there's a classic hedge fund. Yeah. The classic hedge fund manager is, you know, we, we think of, we think of the cowboy days of, you know, yeah. legends like Paul Tucker Jones, where, you know, you're making macro bets and you're trying to find, if you think about that concept of macro or CTAs, they're trying to create optionality. They're trying to, to own some form of optionality inexpensively, whether yeah. that's through an intelligently structured position, whether it's through a strategy that that seeks to buy into different momentum. You're trying to own long optionality. That's what classic hedge fund investing is. Yeah. And we're going back to an environment where it's going to be profitable to make opportunity from change. Yeah. 
And that change, you know, to this point, it doesn't have to be all left tail. It could be left tail. It could be the market drops 20%. It could be the market goes up, you know, 50% in some sort of insane reflationary change of regime. But either way, it's going to be a wonderful time to make opportunity from change as opposed to the last 10 years, which has been trying to squeeze juice out of a short wall trade. That's right. In, in, in no matter how that's expressed. I think one of the dirty secrets of the Nouveau hedge funds is that they're masquerading beta as alpha, selling short volatility as a real hedge fund strategy and largely getting away for, with it, you know, until now. Yeah. Well, if if it suits you guys, I would still love to hear more about some specific trades or specific themes that you are finding particularly exciting at this moment in time in your portfolios. I mean, so the one thing it, it, we haven't touched clearly from my perspective, a lot of what we're doing is, you know, as, as a CTA, yeah. as broad as we can possibly be, we look at a lot of markets and we've, we've had times, I mean, so we, we intentionally run a slightly faster than average long-term CTA trend mm. style with the intention that that, you know, that is what's going to deliver slightly more positive skewness to the returns. It's a bit, sorry, it's more of a long hammer strategy than, than you otherwise get. And it, yeah, it's been painful in the same way that, Running a you know a long vol strategy is painful, and yet exactly as you'd expect. So come December, it's a better environment to be in, and in the future, we still think it's a good you know it's a good position to have. So it, there's nothing new in it, but it's you know it it feels like despite how last year was you know from a returns perspective, it's still a good environment for us. Yeah, I uh I think we so Aramis. We, we focus on long volatility, but on both tails, because both tails are the return distribution. But we think in terms of systems and not trades necessarily. We, we think in terms of systems. But if, if I get to highlight certain themes that I see, uh, vol term structures are very flat. That means it, it's relatively efficient to carry long volatility positions at this level in the event that you have a break in volatility. Volvol is below averages right now. So that's that's pretty interesting. And actually skew has come down. So I think I think one of the things that's really intriguing is that even though we had performance in long vol in, in periods like December, it was not so much the volatility that paid off, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but it was it was more it was more the deltas and the gammas inherent in the positions that paid off. Vol didn't pay off that well. And one of the reasons for that might be because I think big institutions just are so hedge fatigued that they don't want to pay up for volatility of volatility. They don't want to pay up for skew anymore. They don't want to buy implied volatility. They don't want to bid it up. They are essentially saying that why do I need to buy fire insurance when the Fed will will put out my fire for me? Hmm. That could be a very costly mistake. But long story short, what it means is that that many different dimensions of volatility are actually very affordably priced right now. And uh, that can be played systematically or discretionary in a discretionary framework in a way that can profit if there's a break in vol either on the right or left tail. Dan, is there any asset class where vol is particularly cheap from your perspective? I would say both interest rates and currencies, and in particular, long-dated vol. So back to this concept of the flat term structure. So in interest rates and currencies, you can find even the downward sloping term structure. So we've long dated implied volatility at a discount to short dated implied volatility. 
So if you buy the long dated option with the passage of time, you roll up the curve. Yeah. So this gives you an element of positive carry. Now the world is aware of the trades, or we say the vol universe is aware of these trades, but it maybe shied away because of the frustration of waiting for that vol pivot. Yeah. But the argument is this is not the moment in time to let that frustration steer you someplace else. Yeah. The fundamentals are extremely compelling. The valuations stand out. The carry is attractive. The asymmetry is at record high. Yeah. I think this was the frustration for a lot of investors in vol funds or tail risk funds in February because the way that February sh shook out with this huge, the biggest VIX one-day spike in history earlier in the month, you can imagine short vol managers lost money. But interestingly, by the end of the month, most long vol managers lost money because the back-end vol didn't move at all. Yeah. So is this, a, is this a big, how do we... What's the scenario where we really do see this this spike in the in the back end where you can really profit from being long, long-dated vol? I see, ultimately, this is a bet on the vol regime changing. I mean, one of the things is thus far the vol regime has not yet changed. There are signs that it's maybe going to happen shortly. But so far, at least, the old mindset still stands, which is that the Fed or central banks are the guardians of the markets. And that reflexively, you're supposed to sell vol into the spike. And so that is, is a, again, a core part of how the, the average derivative trader trades. I mean, to go back to what Chris was talking about earlier, which I think is really important, the mindset used to be 180 degrees opposite. So when my career began in the, in the mid-90s, you were taught always be long vol structurally because vol always goes up and therefore always buy the dip. And you, you go through this sequence of events so 97, you have the Asian crisis. 98, you have Russia default, long-term capital implode. 99, we get the NASDAQ bubble. So this is the vol event to the upside on the right tail. 2000, NASDAQ bubble bursts. 2001, you get September 11th, so the ultimate idiosyncratic event. 2002, you have accounting scandals, WorldCom, MCI, so on. So you have six, seven years, major vol events every year. Mm. And so that was the perspective. And so just at the same moment, everyone decided you should always be long vol for sure. Of course, it proves to be the exact wrong strategy. Right. And so likewise today, it feels like this mindset that vol can never can never rise yeah. will be broken. But the natural inertia that vol has, I think, is causing people to confuse where we may ultimately end up. Yeah. If you want to if you want to have a sense on how forward volatility is priced, which mm -hmm. in many ways is is also how the long end of the, the vol term structure is priced, just do a moving average on historical vol. It reflects behavioral biases. And now you have an entire, you know, Dan's point, you've got an entire generation of traders that don't even know what a real crisis is. You know, they were they were playing with toys in their crib or, or were in, you know, elementary school during the last major financial crisis. They have they have no institutional knowledge yeah. of what a real elevated vol regime looks like. When does that long end of vol term structure come up? Well, you know, you go back to the, you go back historically. I think I put this chart in my recent letter. We graphed uh, corporate leverage, so corporate debt to GDP. We are now at all time peaks of corporate debt to GDP. It's at about forty seven percent. We've never reached that that height. But that graph, which goes up and it goes down, perfectly tracks the long term vol cycle dating back to the fifties. So if you if you want to start to understand when that vol regime is likely going to likely going to change, 
what we see is there is this period of time where corporate debt peaks, then there's a deleveraging cycle, and then volatility begins to, to increase and the average wall begins to increase. It is intrinsically tied to that debt leverage cycle. So obviously the Fed could, could extend that cycle another year, two, three years um, if they want to, but at a certain point, the piper has to be paid. And is that going to be in a year? Maybe, likely. Is it likely to be in within 10 years? Almost certainly, certainly, five to 10 years, almost certainly. But if you're an institution, you're not seeing that and you're just calibrating your models to the last, last five years, I think you're making a big, big mistake. Well, I think this is the nice transition into the third part of, of our discussion. I want to talk specifically about hedging the way the institutions are looking at their portfolio. I think what's what's interesting is most in fact, I think a lot of investors don't understand the basic concept sometimes that you simply can't be long volatility and be paid to be long volatility. You can't own insurance and be paid, you know, monthly to own that house insurance. So I think this is a, a tricky concept and it's sometimes it's, it's missold in the fact that you can be long ball and long carry. That's the holy grail of any type of investing. And it, it so rarely happens that we almost shouldn't talk about it. But I think it's particularly troublesome for, for example, for, pension funds who are not only underfunded, they know that they want to be hedged. The rest of their portfolio is long biased. And to put that hedge in their portfolio, it's a negative expected value proposition. So it's it's sometimes challenging to have to marry these both these both worlds when you know that it will lose money. And a lot of people have after 2008 into 2009, there was a big inflow into global macro strategies, long volatility strategies, tail risk strategies, and trend following strategies. And in a lot of ways, many of the anything long bias has outperformed all four of these sub strategies. And people are fatigued now, people are tired, and they know they should have some kind of hedging, but they hope that their the diversification and their portfolio construction can help them. And perhaps that won't be the case. So I'd love to hear from you guys about your investors who are using your long volatility products. Where does it fit? Who are the most popular investors that are seeking this type of protection? Dan? I think that you know, there's a couple camps. There's some of the larger, more sophisticated institutional investors that I think have had the ability to think about some of these issues mm. on a deeper level. So they, they would understand that, yes, you do not make money in all scenarios. That's the fundamental trade-off. But I think they also recognize that Long volatility trades, even tail trades, may not have a negative expectation at this moment in time, at this point in the cycle. And so although those trades will lose money if the market rallies as part of a diversified program, that's fine. But they make significant money when you most need it. And the right trades with a positive expectation make money over the full market cycle. Mm. So I think that's that's what the most sophisticated are after. Is is there a strategy out there that still gives you a positive expectation but has a meaningful negative correlation? Because it's so hard to find negative correlation in the hedge fund world or, or just in the investment world more broadly right now. We often have clients come and ask for uncorrelated orthogonal strategies, uncorrelated to their long equities. And so I'll joke, so you want something that's lost money every year for, for nine years. And they say, oh, no, no, we want something that's also made money. And I think that's that's a big problem because these strategies have been hurt 
And right now you don't want to look at the trailing five-year returns because you'd probably discount almost all of these responsible long volatility type of tail risk investments, even though from this point going forward, the proposition is very different than it was five years ago to today. Matthew, how about how about you? What are your clients seeing? How are they using your products? Well, just to add to what you were saying there, not only do they want to have positive carry, uncorrelated returns with positive returns of things, they also want to pay far less Right. They paid a few years ago for, uh, for the same thing. So there's a few things we see. One is there's a sort of bifurcation in, on, at least on the CTA side, in people who look at what trend following was potentially as uh, still an alpha. If you if you go for uh, the full breadth and you're actually looking in as many markets as you can possibly get to, then then there's still kind of enough diversification to find you know pockets where that's a long gallery that you know, the trends exist and you can pick up from it and. It's still, you know, it's been a tough environment, but that's worked okay. But then far more sort of institutional investors tend to be focusing exactly the opposite. They want the most concentrated, you know, lowest cost, but focused trend following, which is only structurally aligned with their portfolio. So they want more or less, you know, cap-weighted positions around the S&P and around, you know, euro stocks and treasury bonds, because those are the things that they're actually structurally worried about in, in the downturn. So they want to have a guarantee that there's kind of hedging ability in those areas. One of the things that I think we have also seen interest in is, is looking structurally at kind of what the the risks around the bond portfolio is. So in a way, it's less now about buying funds, it's about buying solutions. And it's you know, I'm putting my fingers in the air to do the quotations around that. But there's, there's a lot more dialogue about what portfolio modeling needs to go on to find the right balance. And, and things that look at the correlations between the equity market and the fixed income market in a rising yield environment and trying, you know, reacting to those uh, solutions, you know, those environments specifically, yeah. which will, you know, naturally come up. We, we sort of saw that actually back in January before the February thing. You know, we, we, you know, the treasury bond market was, you know, starting to suffer quite a lot of stress and it took a while for people to start thinking about forward valuations and say, actually, yeah, maybe this is also something which is going to impact the, you know, the market. So, there's quite a lot of discussion, and I think the sophisticated investors actually are trying to come and have proper conversations. It's not just about one strategy. It's not a single long vol. Let's be far down the term structure so we don't worry about the carry we're paying away, because that typically hasn't helped anyway. It's about working out the different components that can, can add value. We did a whole bunch of paper writing about you know the kinds of active strategies that work best in vol structure. And, and a lot of it isn't just about vol trading. It's even things like quality stock, you know, selection, tilting portfolios in, in that direction around the times when you see stress in the markets, because actually you want to step back away but not take your exposure off completely. Yeah. Matthew, I'd love to hear your view on trend following at the moment. And if we're sticking with our Game of Thrones analogy, it's not that winter is coming for trend following. I think winter is already here. It's, it's been, been here for a while. It's <laughs> been here for years. And even the, the most ardent supporters have kind of thrown in the towel. It's been it's been so it's, challenging. But strange enough, so we've been you know we've not found that the the smarter investors have walked away. So mm. we've not really seen much of that in our space. I don't know. The industry still clearly grown since the yeah. financial crisis, and that's not gone away completely. I do you know I share the concern that actually it's not necessarily the trend following itself. It's a lot of the time it's the the risk scaling the. You know, the, the effective vol strategizing, which will actively, you know, see deleveraging every time we start seeing kind of spikes up. 
I can't talk to the you know to the to the clients walking away because I think actually there's still an understanding that this does have some potential you know left side protection value and so as long as it's within the larger portfolio and it's not seen as the single line item that people worry about you know, in a given year then yeah. it's it's still less costly potentially than than just running the naked long haul yeah I think this has been a long cycle and it has been this quantitative easing cycle over the past call it decade. And over that time, we've seen the underperformance of active management at the hand of passive management. We've seen the underperformance of trend following and the momentum strategy. And most importantly, for the majority of hedge funds that are long short equity, we've seen the underperformance of value at the, at the hand of growth. Yeah. And I think if you look something like over the past 100 years, value has outperformed growth by something like eight, nine, 10% on average for 100 years. But for the past 10 years, it's been the other way around. So it's been the fangs that have led the way. So the question is for a lot of the hedge funds have been, who has the biggest position in the growthiest names and the under and the value guys have been killed. And I think if it gets sw- flipped around, we could very easily see the outperformance of, of, you know, discretionary global macro of value will come back in favor. And it will be more of a stock pickers market when we have a more normalized market, which I think we've already seen over these past 12 months. And that cycle follows the leverage cycle. That's right. It's, it's, it's yeah. So, the, I mean, one of the, the, the last period of time where there was significant outperformance and momentum over value was before the 2007, 2008 crisis. And then before that, there was a very long outperformance and momentum over value just prior to the dot-com crisis. Yeah. So it, it, it actually is kind of a sign of blow-off tops in markets or the of, of a peak regime. It doesn't mean it can't continue for another year, two years, but I think when you see that divergence, it's worth, worth taking note. You know, to kind of add a little bit, I mean, I, to just completely reiterate, I, I think a lot of our clients take an, a mosaic approach and they say, I want to have this long ball exposure and they'll broadly define long volatility. Long volatility could be, you know, what Dan and I do is actually going out and buying, purely buying volatility or optionality. It could be creating synthetic gamma through CTAs, or it could be smart global macro managers that create synthetic optionality, but they take a mosaic approach. I think one of the big themes this cycle, going back in the 90s, you could sit back and say, what was the you know best positive carry diversifier long ball manager was, was actually owning investment grade fixed income because every single time it was positive carry, every single time the you had a drop in interest rates, that ended up performing really well. So it ended up in this cycle where people said, oh, I don't really, I, I get this exposure through fixed income. Well, fast forward to today, to get the same convexity out of your bond portfolio, you have to have rates go deeply into negative territory to get the same convexity that you got in 2008. So I think many of our smartest clients are saying, wow, we want a diversifier. We don't trust fixed income as a diversifier. It doesn't necessarily, the disaster scenario is where stocks and bonds go down together at the same time. That's a disaster scenario. And that's you know one that, that I've talked at length about in some of my research papers. But another disaster scenario is you know stocks drop draw down 40% and fixed income gets you 4%. You know, that's also a massive disaster for an already underfunded pension system because, you know, treasury bonds and high quality fixed income really performed in 08. You know, it could just be stocks down a lot and bonds, bonds not, not giving you anything. It's another big reason to look towards alternative forms of long volatility exposure that can that can perform when your 60-40 stock bond split 
is 100% loser or not doing much for you, then you know that Vol can perform in that regime shift. Thank you, Chris. And I think that was a perfect way to wrap it up. We are bumping up against our time limit here. So I want to thank my guests, Chris and Dan and Matthew for coming on the show. Thank you very much, guys. And thanks to everyone for listening. Take care. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Chris, for a great and wide-ranging conversation about current risks, market volatility, and tail hedging opportunities. I hope you were able to take a lot of useful information from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in Managed Futures. From me, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, and our sponsors, CME Group and the Managed Fund Association, thanks for listening, and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources you can find on cmegroup.com as well as toptradersroundtable.com. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.